Hey, how's it going? This is Craig Cannon, and you're listening to Y Combinator's podcast. Today's episode is with Avni Patel-Thompson. Avni's the founder and CEO of Poppy, and Poppy lets parents book the best caregivers with just a text. She went through YC in the winter 2016 batch, and we recorded this episode at our Female Founders Conference in Seattle. We're also hosting two more events this year for female founders, one in New York and one in San Francisco. So if you want to get updates on those, you can sign up to our newsletter at blog.ycombinator.com. All right, here we go. So, Avni, yeah. you, um, by traditional standards, were incredibly successful in the traditional world. Like, you get an MBA at Harvard, you start working at these big companies. What made you decide that you wanted to leave that world when you're clearly on a trajectory to just be successful that way? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, it's one I sometimes ask myself <laughs> at 3 a.m. Um, no, so the way I think about my um, career, so I actually have an undergrad in chemistry, which is okay. a little bit um, uh, kind of random maybe, but I started my career at Procter & Gamble in brand management. Um, and that a lot of about, it was just because, you know, as a young person, when you don't really know what you're wanting to do, you sort of take the opportunities that are kind of put in front of you and see what um, that leads to. And that has really served me well. And um, yeah. When I got to Procter & Gamble, um, they make things like Tide and Pampers and Crest and lots of different consumer things. And what I ended up, I didn't even realize this until I got into it, but what I ended up falling in love with is like consumer psychology. And mm-hmm. they taught me how to really see consumers' problems. And so not as they say them, um, but as they actually experience them. Okay. And so that actually means like going into people's homes and not just like listening to what they're saying, but how they're actually, their behaviors and things like that. Is that your job? Yeah. So um, as a brand manager, your job is for a different product. For the product that I worked on um, was actually in pharmaceuticals, so it was drugs. Um, and I was working on, a, for example, a packaging um, pro- project. And, you know, you can have people come in to do kind of focus groups and stuff like that. But when you have them come in and even bring their like little pill packs and stuff like that, they'll say, and you'll just ask them, hey, how's the packaging working for you? Any issues or things like that? And you'll try to ask it in non-leading ways. But inevitably, they're like, oh, no, that's, you know, it's fine. You know, I don't, I don't have any issues with it. And then we'd go do in-homes and there'd mm-hmm. be fewer, like maybe just a couple of them. But you now see them kind of in the wild mm-hmm. and you'd see their homes and then just all these different things. I just re- still remember this one time I walked into a home and uh, I saw the pill pack on the kitchen table and there was a pair of scissors next to it. And the woman had just completely cut the damn thing up and yeah. had set each of the individual pill pack things into like, you know, those daily kind of pill counter so, things. So pill pack is like the blister pack, it's right? Like the it's like the blister pack, tin yes. foil. Yeah, the yeah, tin yeah. foil situation in some kind of cardboard and packaging. so she takes a scissor, cuts them out, puts it in right. like Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. Right. Yeah, yeah. And tried to approximate that. And I think the thing is, is that like uh, obviously like child resistant and all these types of things, but sometimes those can be challenging um, on the other end if you're older and got arthritis and things like that. So the insight there was here we're spending all this money on this beautiful pill pack with all this kind of stuff and people are just ripping into it and there's no delight there. There's friction, all that (laughs) kind of stuff. And so that was really powerful for me because I realized the importance already of talking to your users, but then also like seeing their problems in real life and not just taking them at face value. So that's where I think also like surveys and things like that can be limiting Uh because people sometimes a can't articulate what their problem is in the way that they want to. Um, But sometimes there's other emotions at war, like um, shame or embarrassment or things like that insecurity. Um, And so that, you know, I, I started in pharmaceuticals. I then went and got my MBA. Um, I then went to consulting. So (laughs) very, very standard um, kind of background. But the thing that was consistent, was they were all consumer companies. Yeah. Um, 
So even um, the consulting worked on like grocery brands and drugstore brands. Um, And then after that, uh, you know, good stint in consulting, but then went to Adidas and did footwear and apparel for a little while. Okay. Yeah. So again, the thread in my life um, has never been necessarily the what, but yeah. it's just a really compelling human kind of problem or like a really um, interesting brand problem to kind of solve. And so I went to Adidas um, and it's kind of funny. It started there in Boston and then my husband was asked to move to China. So we actually moved to China um, and he um, worked there and I continued to work for Adidas in China. From and that, China. From China and did strategy there. And that was just a phenomenal experience. It's, yeah. It's uh, one of my favorite quotes is the Steve Jobs quote that says you can only connect the dots looking backwards. And I think even though um, even though the arc appears very traditional. Yeah. I think the choices that I've made with my career have been a little bit unorthodox, but I think that's fine because now as I'm in startup world, I'm connecting these dots that I've kind of come to me from the past. Um, but we lived in China for a while and that's also where um, I was pregnant with our first daughter. And so we decided to come back to Boston to have okay. her and embark on that journey. Yeah. And I think when we did, we realized this whole thing of uh, like, you know, both my husband and I are these people that... Um, have loved our careers, have moved around yeah. for them and, you know, love all that. But when you have a kid, man, that's a, that is a life change. Yeah. And they tell you, but you really <laughs> don't understand it until you have um, a kid. And so we, we decided we needed to get closer to family. Um, my family lives up in Vancouver, Canada. Uh-huh. And so we made it as close as Seattle. So, okay. um, at the time, my husband went to Amazon and I went to Starbucks, still a very neat and tidy kind of corporate uh, story. But I think at that time, to sort of circle back to your question, is um, I've always had this sort of entrepreneurial kind of, mm-hmm. um, you know, inkling that I want, wanted to start something. Um, my parents um, were small business owners. And so I've always been around uh, business and entrepreneurship. And I always figured at some point I'd take my shot. Okay. So um, most people wouldn't think that once you have a kid is when you're like going Definitely to go no. take that shot. Um, but for me, um, it also is an interesting thing because when you become a parent, um, and I can only obviously speak as a mother, but your calculus on your time kind of changes. Yeah. And so for me, what I wanted to do with my time, I knew I wasn't a stay-at-home mom, but if I was going to be away from my kids, I knew I wanted it to be something that um, I personally felt a little bit more um, was worthwhile of my time. Hmm. Just a, I want to continue with the story, but I have a question related yeah. to your story. What's your advice to people for moving for their partner? For a job, like you're both career minded people Mm -hmm. and you moved all the way to China. Like, what do you tell other people? I mean, obviously, like a female founder, that's an even like it's probably a classic example and whether or not that's good or bad. Like, yeah. So what do you say to people? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I think it's a really relevant question. Um, I think for me and my relationship specifically, my husband and I have always looked at ourselves as sort of equals in that way. Yeah. And so even in this instance, though I was the trailing spouse, if you, that's how it's called, um, there have been other instances that my husband moved, for example, to Boston yeah. when I was doing school there. And so it's always been this idea of we have a conversation and we say, what is the net good for the both of us? And it isn't always perfect. Um, Seattle is an example where we managed to both 
end up moving at the same time and find really interesting uh, jobs for both of ourselves. Mm -hmm. But um, I think there are trade-offs, right? So um, I think where one of us could have probably accelerated faster or further in either of our careers, what we have always said in the arc of our lives, are we making the choices? Are we doing the things that is really true to us? Mm -hmm. And I think China, that was actually a particularly um, difficult one for me because I just started like maybe seven months prior, that job. So if you think about it from a resume standpoint or anything like sort of rational, that's not a good move to make for your career. But it's crazy that you could even stay in the same company. Yeah. So I think that's also a testament to when you work hard and when you focus on doing the work, you buy yourself options. So in that instance, in um, seven months, I was able to prove myself still. I was able to prove that I was someone that you should give a chance to, um, to do something very different in a different role. Sure, not part of the plan. Um, But also, I was prepared that if that didn't work out, I was prepared to not perhaps be working while we were at China, in China. Okay. And those are conversations that you need to have and be prepared um, to do. And there can't be lingering resentment. Like you have to own your choices. And so I think whether it was me or my husband or for whatever the reason is, I think that's really important. I think it's also really important as founders now. You have to own your choices. Um, it is hard. Yeah. And um, but you have a choice every single day to to do it or not to do it. Right. And so as long as you own your choice, um, I think that's an empowering thing. Mm-hmm. And so you're not thinking about it through the lens of regret or what ifs, but you're thinking through, no, this is my choice. I made it. Now I'm making the best of it. Yeah. And that opens up really cool doors. But I think um, managing careers with dual working spouses, I think A, is not a topic that's really talked about a ton. No. Um, but B, I think um, there are ways. Um, and I think... You know, it doesn't necessarily always have to be in the context of trade-off, but there is this, like, you do have to have the honest conversation about it. Yeah. And so what are your pro tips for managing two careers and kids? Yeah. So (laughs) that's a lot of layers. Um, when When it comes to careers, I think, you know, the conversation for both of us has always been, we are... We are people that get engaged by ideas and we are not people that can sort of do a job just because it's rational and right and necessarily pays well. And I, you know, there are days that I wish I could be that person, (laughs) Um, you know, even leaving my consulting job. I mean, if I had stayed there and was a partner in consulting, like, you know, it affords you really um, nice things. And I'll say this super honestly, for those of us that come from really um, somewhat more humble backgrounds, where money isn't always a uh, assured thing, um, I think that drives us to go and, and I know it drives me yeah. to never be in the position to have to question money. And so I will say very honestly, like that is something that I struggle with now today in starting a startup because I've now put myself in a position (laughs) where I am not financially sort of um, sound and where all my previous choices have been at least, you know, around like if not going all for financial security, but at least, you know, in a comfortable place. Right. And that is something that needs to be talked about because it isn't it's a reality. Yeah. And you need to address it. So. From a pro tip standpoint, um, I, I mean, it sounds sort of silly, but it is communication, right? So I think um, people don't have hard conversations often enough and uh, deeply enough. And so it is saying, hey, this makes me uncomfortable, but we need to talk about it. And anytime you start feeling something shifting into just like a little bit of fester, you need yeah. to just, you know, uh, talk about it. Mm. Um, And where it comes to kids, I think it's the same kind of thing. I've had um, founders kind of ask me, uh, when's a good time to have kids? Or it's like, and you know, the same way that there's no good time to start a startup, there's no good time to have kids. You'll figure it out. I think that's, it's it's sort of like 
like, you know, cop out answer. But for me, it is having a combination of family, an incredible nanny and a dance. Like every single week, it's a dance and everyone needs to have like know their spots and like all their roles. And as long as all that's working, yeah. it's working. Okay. One person's sick, somebody has a business trip, something else happens and that throws it off and you have to work to bring it back to neutral. Um, but that's the constant fight. Okay. And so now is your husband still working in a traditional like big company job? No. So now he's also made the leap oh, really? to okay. uh, tech and to startups as well. And I think, again, that's the same thing. It's like, you could say that nope, one person has to, you know, hold the fort down. That's what I was thinking. And yeah. it sounds very rational <laughs> and it sounds very reasonable. I think the thing is, is that there's so many things happening. Yeah. And to say tech is a silo or tech is a vertical is sort of um, an incomplete kind of statement. Tech is everywhere now. Yeah. And so for both of us, we get so excited about the way that tech is touching everything. And so for him, yeah, he's just equally as excited. And so he's doing his own thing. I'm also working on um, startups. Interesting. So before we get into the full poppy story, yeah. what was it like working in China? Oh, so this is in 2011 and we're in Shanghai. Um, I don't know. It's wild. It's, okay. it's, it's, uh, <laughs> It is hard in the sense of we have moved around. We're both Canadian. Yeah. Um, we've lived in the States for a number of years, um, over a decade, and our work has taken us all over the world. Um, but nothing really prepared us for China. I think um, it's a fascinating culture, a fascinating country. Um, its history is really obviously um, informs a lot of its current. Yeah. Um, but the, everything from language to, you know, because Mandarin is a very difficult and, you know, going to Hong Kong, we're like, you know, we've been to Hong Kong. Maybe it's, um, you know, somewhat similar. It isn't. <laughs> uh, mainland China is a, is a thing of its own. And to live in Shanghai at the time still felt like the wild, wild west. There weren't a lot of expats. Um, and, you know, to get around, you still need to learn a base amount of Mandarin. So we picked up Mandarin while we were there. Um, and, the most, it's like a drug, I will tell you. You start working there and um, 40% growth rates feel like sandbagging. And if you can imagine something like that, and we're coming from the US where one to 2% is like, cool, we're growing. 40% um, is sandbagging. And so it's everything is moving so fast. You're hiring people. You're trying to do all these things. The world is changing. They're building buildings so quickly. Um, there's an energy and a buzz in the air. Yeah. And I think to tell you the truth, Having lived in Shanghai for that year and then coming back to the U.S., having our kid and then coming back, that truly was also an impetus to want to get into startups because it has this drive of things are happening in the world. Yep. Um, things are changing. People are doing exciting things, and I need to be a part of that. And so coming off of uh, living in China, working in footwear apparel, which is a really hot category at the time, um, just sort of showed both of us um, – how we could just get out there and take big swings. Well, it's not a coincidence that big companies, you know, a big art, like a lot of, you know, celebrities in LA, whatever, they come from certain places mm -hmm. because it's not only do the people that want to work in that industry move there, but then you're surrounded by people that are your peers and they're all doing this stuff. And you're like, I got to keep up at the very exactly. least. That's exactly <laughs> so, it. Yeah. And then, but what the beautiful thing is, because you come from other places, yeah. becomes this amazing mosaic of different ideas. But we're speaking the same language because we're trying to do the same thing. And that's all, often um, what I love about YC is because we come from very different backgrounds. We're doing very different things, solving very different problems, but we speak a common language. We're trying to do, you know, we're trying to all talk to users. We're all trying to build product. Um, we're all trying to grow companies and just like, you know, disrupt 
archaic industries. And so yeah. that commonality gives us the common language to talk, right. but we come from like fascinating different backgrounds. Right. Like today. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, we're at the Female Founders Conference in Seattle. <laughs> um, so Gustav, uh, partner of YC, asked you, uh, why did you start Poppy? So. Yeah. So maybe I can fill in the blank also in the intervening time of uh, working at my traditional background and companies to yeah. starting Poppy, I actually started a separate startup. Um, and so uh, I have always been passionate about uh, raising culturally curious kids. So the, okay. the idea of, you know, we've moved around a lot. And if we can't live and move around and uh, live in all these different countries, then how do you bring that to your kids and have them grow up to be sort of globally savvy? I think it's just super important for the next generation yeah. to... Um, to understand differences in backgrounds and, and be conversant and not make it feel very threatening and things like that. So anyways, a friend and I had this idea and said, why couldn't this be? This is also the era of subscription boxes, um, okay. you know, in 2012 or so. And so we <laughs> it's thought... It's so funny how there are like chapters, chapters. In, but within the past five years. Okay. Anyway, yeah. keep going. <laughs> no, there are. There definitely are. And so that was um, when you're seeing other folks doing it, yeah. you're like, no, no, I could do this for of this course. vertical. And so very similarly, um, we thought you know, let's build subscription boxes that have each month a different culture. So, you know, India one a month, China, Japan. And instead of doing what we call saris and samosas or like, you know, sushi and samurais, very like stereotypical stuff, yeah. let's take you into a market. Let's talk to you about language and food, the things that really inform um, a people and how they think. Yeah. And so we were really, still am super passionate about the topic. Um, but I think the way that I approached it or we approached it, you know, was very... Um, you know, very conventional, I guess, but we had built a business plan. We pulled market numbers. Um, we had a story, right? Because yeah. you can find any numbers you want. Yeah. Um, and we focused more on product of what we wanted to have in the box, less what we thought was going to solve the problem. And so we built this and we thought we were being scrappy and did it in about six months and launched and um, started to get going. And as you know, e-commerce is hard. Uh, customer acquisition costs can be crazy. The yeah. uh, long-term value or LTV um, is not necessarily there. And so we learned that the hard way. Um, this is a very niche market, even though people, so this is where I, um, when people tell me, oh, I've been talking about my idea and everyone loves it. I say, be careful because everyone loves you or you can sell an idea. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing, no skin off their back to say, no, that's a really great idea. I can't believe any, no one's thought about it. Um, um, we use that as validation, and that was sort of wrong because the only real validation is their money. Um, Even with your friends, like oh, absolutely. I know it's kind of trite to say like your friends were going to yes you, but most of your friends won't just give you money they straight won't. up. So you can they actually won't. ask your friends, even totally. though, even if they want to make you happy. This is also why I don't believe in friends and family discounts. Yeah. Um, and, and it's not to say that you don't maybe give them discounts or things like that, but just don't give it to them for free, right? Because <laughs> that won't give you the right signal for where, whether they're actually valuing it. So anyways, the long story short was that we spent about a year and truthfully about $20,000 of personal money yeah. bootstrapping um, and ultimately came to the you know realization that this was not a fundable, scalable company. And instead of running it as a small business and sort of like a lifestyle business, uh, we were going to shut it down. And that was a really hard thing. 
I think because I figured this was my go at startups. I had bought myself yeah. like a year of time of not taking a salary, which was a hardship for my. Oh, you had already quit. Yes, I had oh, quit my job because right. I thought, you know, if we're going to do this, in, like we're going to do believe, this. Yeah. Well, we had been talking about it on the side for about a year, right? And we both had kids. Um, <laughs> the funny thing is, maybe not so funny, <laughs> is that the day that I gave notice that I was going to quit my job, I found out I was pregnant with my second daughter. <laughs> So I, you know, life choices in me. Um, no, and I think it is motivating. I don't believe in wasting another day if you don't think that that's going to serve you. Um, and so for me, though, we now had two kids. Okay. Um, I felt like I had taken my shot at startups and failed miserably. Um, if not like holy, I learned so much, but you know, it still feels like failure. And so used up all my money, used up basically all the time that I had said, hey, you know, we can we swing it, you know, with savings and stuff to not for me to not make any money. Yeah. And um, but, you know, as you're as you're failing or closing something else down for me, what was really important is I needed to learn from this experience. And so I started talking to parents and saying, hey, if this thing isn't really necessary in your life and isn't really important, then what are some of the big problems in your life that you face like on a daily, weekly mm, standpoint? Mm -hmm. And the topic kept on coming back to childcare. And I mean, I knew that because I lived the same thing. Like both my husband and I work, we had, um, we didn't have family that lived in town and, um, there was all these kind of random things that would pop up, you know, nanny's sick or, you know, uh, meetings running late and just little things like that can just throw off your complete week mm -hmm. and add stress in a marriage, add stress in a family, all the things like having kids is hard enough. That is just like a slap in the mm -hmm. face. And so as I started to hear that, I realized that what people weren't talking about was just needing a sitter or a nanny. What they were missing was this idea of their village. Hmm. And so everyone says it takes a village to raise a child, but you know, all of us are moving around for our careers, for education. Um, neighborhoods aren't what they used to be. How many people know their neighbors and such that you would, you know, leave your children with them? Um, and with all of that happening, we don't have any safety net as parents. And so that realization started to, you know, kind of pop into my head. And so even though I don't have any childcare experience, like in that <laughs> industry, um, I have no marketplace, you know, background or anything like that, yeah. certainly no tech industry background. Yeah. I quickly saw how, or at least hypothesize how you might you know, solve that. Okay. And so for me, this is where my uh, chem degree kind of comes back and I broke it down into like a nice, like tidy equation. And so for me, it was that if a village is a function of, you know, someone that you trust is a fit for your family from a, like a values uh, standpoint and is there when you need them to be, um, could you break it down from technology, from a vetting mechanism, a matching algorithm yeah. and a scheduler? Uh -huh. So again, it was this whole thing of like, let's just break it down continually. And then I figured, okay, well, how would we test that? And I could see an app, yeah. but I can't build an app. <laughs> and so for a little while I was, you know, stressed out about that. Um, but then finally I was like, if I was going to, you know, when, um, for a lot of founders, I hear this, you get obsessed with an idea. Yes. You literally can't get it out of your head. It's you're sleeping, you're, you're talking about it. It's just in your head all of the time. And you're just super distracted. Mm -hmm. And finally, I remember my husband saying, you just have to try the damn thing out. Cause it's like either do it or don't do it, but oh, you need man. to. Yeah, I have friends who've been talking about ideas for like five years. Right. Like, and it's just dude, like, stop. you, you want to <laughs> say, it do it or don't do it. Yeah. But you know, you got to figure it out. Yeah. And so finally I was like, well, I don't know how I'm going to do this because I have no money left. Um, I have no time. Really. Well, we should talk about that, right? Like, so you try the box startup. Yep. It doesn't work. Yep. Like, did you honestly consider just finding a job? Like, what, what was the moment that made you decide to, like, double down? 
Yeah. So um, truth be told, I was pursuing three in a good risk-averse kind of way. Yeah. I had three <laughs> options. Um, option A was just return to my corporate career. Yeah. Um, I knew I could do that. Yeah. I knew I was good at it. It didn't uh, excite me, but I was like, yeah, you know, I can make some money and figure the next thing out. Uh, regroup. The second thing was, you know what? Now I'm into startups. I don't have to start another startup. I could work at another startup. That's another way to go and do that. Yep. And actually for some time I did actually go, um, there was a local travel startup with nothing but engineers and I was hmm. their first non-technical um, hire. And um, even though it was for, um, you know, only a couple of months, what that taught me was like, I now start, like I met engineers for the first time in, in like a really yeah, compelling yeah. way, started to see how software was built. And that was really cool. Um, but that was my second path because I just figured that's what I'm going to do for some period of time. Makes I'm sense. just going to go work at another startup, lend my passion and experience to another startup, which I think is a compelling opportunity for a lot of different people. Mm -hmm. um, and then the third was just go at it again. And so I think the problem was that even um, as I was um, thinking about the more, I guess, rational or responsible opportunities, the idea just kept on gaining yeah. steam. And as I kept on thinking about it, I was like, it doesn't matter. I don't have it. I can't build an app. I could use SMS. I could approximate it by, I could just go and find and vet, you know, a couple of caregivers and I can go find these parents in the, just my neighborhood. It doesn't yep. have to be a big fancy thing. Um, and honestly, there are like kind of vanity uh, emotions and stuff like that. Like people didn't even realize that I had shut up, shut down my first startup. So I didn't want to like make a big hoopla about like, you know, starting another one. Mm -hmm. And so that was kind of good because that gave me no expectations. So I literally, um, this is where this whole idea of the four week test was, um, I figured, and you know, my husband said, like, just go try it out, go figure it out. I figured if I gave myself the space of four weeks, um, and the whole point was by the, now I'd started reading some of PG's essays. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd never been in like, you know, hacker news and all that kind of stuff. Okay. That's not my background. Um, but I started reading this stuff and I was like, just so interested about ideas. Yeah. And so I started reading this and, um, started watching how to start a startup and this whole idea of can you just get consistent weekly growth and can you talk to um, users and build product? And that resonated back to my P&G days of like doing that. And that spoke to me. Mm -hmm. So I, I thought if I could find myself four weeks, I had like 200 bucks left in my business banking account. <laughs> okay, great. So I was like, you know what? Typeform, uh, like Squarespace, I can do a four-week trial, Typeform, um, do signups and things like that. I can use Excel as a database. I can use uh, Google Calendar as a uh, scheduler and SMS to kind of connect it all. Your personal cell phone? Yep. Yeah, okay. I gave people my personal cell phone number. Yeah. <laughs> and for the longest time, and even to this day, I will have like old school uh, parents still text my phone and say, hey, I need a poppy. <laughs> it's wild. Um, <laughs> no, so I set it up as a four-week test. And I still remember the day I was like, am I going to actually do this? Because it feels janky and it feels scary again. But I said, I have to know. Okay. So literally sent an email to 15 parents and just said, hey, I've got these three amazing people. If you need them, just text this phone number. And I gave them a phone number as my phone number. And that day got our first booking. And that week I got four. Okay. So that week was, okay, that's my base. If I've got four, the next week, 10%, I need to get five. Okay. Ended up getting six. And the week after, even more. And the week after, even more. And so I think more than the actual numbers, it was this idea of consistent growth. And then it feels different when you're um, not pushing people to try your product, but people are, people are pulling you to give them more. Mm -hmm. That felt very different. And mm -hmm. so anyways, that was the genesis of Poppy. Very... Um, almost accidental in some ways, but very driven by a specific need. I had a problem. Mm. I needed to solve it. 
I figured I had a different hypothesis than the other very crowded people in like this very crowded industry. Yeah. So someone from Twitter asked a question. Uh, 494 asked, uh, they heard about your four-week test. Yeah. What are your suggestions for someone who doesn't have four weeks or works a full-time job or, say, is a college student, whatever, just yeah. generic, busy person? Yeah. Uh, what are your tips? Yeah, so the reason I love the – and this is just in retrospect. The reason I like the construct of a four-week test is that for a lot of people, and especially underrepresented um, founders and yeah. things like that, we face um, disproportionate number of hurdles, whether it's you have kids or you have um, to care for aging parents yeah. or you come from communities that aren't don't have startup um, things. The point is you have to get to growth and you're going to have to double down to prove that you deserve funding to be to be around or whatever else or just it is. pressure from your family like totally. i know a lot of my friends who like you know they have a big fancy job somewhere and their family's like why would you ever leave That's that exactly i've it. never had a 401k or whatever stock options That's yeah. exactly it and so if you use the construct of a four-week test inside yeah. of four weeks you can know whether you have something or if you don't and that way at least you know if you do have something like i ended up having yeah. that gives you the confidence it gives you the um the rationale to be able to go tell your family or whoever you tell yourself, no, no, I can, I can do this. Um, there's something here. And if there isn't, then there isn't. At mm -hmm. least you can kind of either like regroup and learn or whatever, and you can decide your commitment to but it. You, but you have to be focused, right? So, oh, absolutely. so say like, I, the question this person seemingly is asking is like, you don't have four weeks of, you know, 40 Dedicated hours time. a week or whatever. So how do you, um, how do you kind of like figure out the problem, figure out what to spend your time on if you're yeah. just going to, yeah, do it in so limited So I time. would challenge people um, that you probably have more time than you think. <laughs> and again, it is, um, and I don't mean to be flippant, but, you know, at the time, um, I think my second daughter was maybe three or four months old. Okay. Um, my older daughter was three years old. I was still in the process of wrapping up my other startup. Um, so that's just to say there was a lot of noise. Yeah. Um, but when you're, when something takes a hold of you, and you can't, you have to do right by the idea. And I think about it, um, I actually love that I started startups as I started a family because a startup for me, um, there's a lot of parenthood parallels. Mm -hmm. um, you would do anything for your kids. You become a mama bear and you don't care if you're afraid, you would do anything for your kids. It gives you um, a courage mm -hmm. that um, you don't know where it comes from. In the same way for my startup. For my second startup, because I knew it had to exist, not for me and for any vanity reason, but because I know my users need it. Mm -hmm. I know it does something amazing in the world. My job is to make sure it doesn't die. Mm -hmm. And so for that, I will do anything. I will talk to anyone. I will hire, like, you know, I will, you know, I will do any work that it takes to make sure my, my startup doesn't die yeah. because it has to survive in the world. And so I think my point is, is that if it is the right idea, it is the idea that you're going to commit. And I think here's an important point too, is that it isn't about the starting because if you're lucky and you actually have something, you're about to spend the next five <laughs> to 10 years of this your life. This is a big misconception. It's like, oh, all right, I ship Poppy V1. It's like, congrats, you just started. Congrats, <laughs> you just signed up the next five to 10 years of your life yeah. to devote to this mission. So again, yeah. be very sure you want to do that. But if that's my point, is that if this is something that you're meant to do, that you are committed to doing, you will find the time. Mm -hmm. My second point when it relates to college um, students, mm -hmm. that isn't to say... Um, 
lots of young people don't or can't start really great startups, but don't feel the pressure to start it. Mm-hmm. Um, I have loved that I've had a very disparate kind of um, kind of younger phase, if you will. I've had the chance to go and do lots of different things, um, experience the world, all that kind of stuff. And all of that has been fodder for building a more thoughtful, more interesting company. And so if you're a college student that just feels like you want to start a startup, but don't really necessarily have that specific idea or whatever else it is, I would say go focus on your studies, like go take really cool courses, philosophy, or like whatever else it is. Um, go get interesting experiences that will then serve you down the road when yeah. you go meet your co-founder and you actually have an idea and you want to go do it. Um, I think it, it makes sense, right? Because like to what you were saying before with, you know, the, the first startup didn't work out. Something that's not talked about is that a lot of the most succe- successful, like, you know, monetarily, it will yeah. use that metric. Yeah. Um, many of those people just have a high batting average. They, totally. they didn't shoot the ball one time. Totally. And so, like, they didn't never talk about the dumb stuff they've worked on, but like, they made all these stupid projects. They weren't precious about them. Yeah. And I was that, I was that guy in college. Like, I was like, all right, I'm going to come up with this company idea and this is it. Totally. Like, That's not the average totally. by any means. So I'm Canadian, so I'm going to use a hockey analogy, but you <laughs> miss a hundred percent of the shots that you don't take, right? Wayne Gretzky, Wayne Michael Gretzky. Scott. <laughs> there you go. Um, and so I love that because it's absolutely true. Yeah. Um, I I I applied to YC three times. And so I think that's also something that is um, misunderstood or kind of glossed over. Um, persistence, right? Um, if you think like it's the, the right... Like half the batch applies twice or more. Totally. And yeah. um, I think what people misunderstand is that I think somewhere in the glossiness of startups and all that kind of stuff, and no founder, I bet, will tell you this, but most of us have had to persist through tons of stuff, tons of investor rejection, tons of consumer rejection, tons of just like rejection. Yeah. The point is you have to have enough um, faith in self and faith in vision to be able to see you through. And if the thing is the thing, like for me, YC was the thing that I thought um, very specifically was what I needed and wanted to help me. And so even when I was rejected the first time, um, I worked very hard to make it be something that um, would make it like increase my chances of getting into YC the next time. But I guess the point by that time also was even if I hadn't gone into YC, um, by that time I had a thriving company and I had customers <laughs> and I had all. And so then I was like, screw YC if they don't like, like, you know, if they don't fund me, totally I'm going to do this anyways. Yeah. But I think that was the right thing. I was not there with my first startup. I said, I'm going to need to get, I want to get into YC because of the vanity badge. And then I've made it, or I want to get funded by this VC because blah. But with Poppy, again, it puts everything into the right context because I wanted to get into YC because I wanted to accelerate my company and make it into something bigger and work with the best minds in tech to help improve my probability of success. Mm. Same thing with investors. I have now realized there are amazing people that see our vision and their capital is helping to fuel our growth. Um, And there's other people that don't see it. And in fact, even if you offered me money, I wouldn't want it Mm. because I need the people that see our vision and our partners um, and aren't just checks. Um, there certainly will be times when you just need the money. Yeah. But um, I think especially for a mission-driven company like mine, you have to have people that are bought into the mission, to the timeline, because they're not always the same. I'm not building this to, you know, a quick flip it kind of thing. Childcare is not that category. <laughs> um, <laughs> so you need the people that see why you're doing this and believe in it and yeah. therefore, and then also write checks for so it. So if you're, I mean, a, a lot of the people that listen to the podcast are 
interested in pursuing the VC route. Mm -hmm. So we can just kind of assume that, right? So say you're going to build a, like a mission-backed company, like similar to yours. What what do you think about fundraising? Like, how do you go about that process? Because it's true, like your your numbers aren't, you know, WhatsApp yeah. numbers, no. right? So how do you how do you find those investors? How do you convince them? What do you do? Yeah, so I think um I think definitely it's hard for me to say what factors kind of play into it, but I definitely know that in the early days of me raising, it was certainly hard harder. Um because on the surface it appears a very crowded market. Um it is hard for anyone to understand why a person that's coming off of a failed startup who doesn't have a technical background, um, you know, all the things like I, if I was pitching yeah. me, I would say no too, right? <laughs> like there's no data to suggest that I'm the one who's going to make this thing go. Yeah. But the beautiful thing, and that's also where YC kind of came in was especially what YC says is go prove it from your users, right? If you go prove that you're making something that people want. And that's why I was like, you know what? I can do that. And so I went and I let the growth do the talking. And so um, there's one thing that like, you know, around YC that we say that growth solves all problems. And I love that one because if there's nothing else I can do, I go and try to figure out growth. Yeah. Growth helped me find my eventual CTO and co-founder. Um, growth helped me go and raise money. If not everyone saying yeah. yes, the right people started to say, oh, well, there must be something here. Like, what are those people? And then those people went and talked to parents or the caregivers. And so the people who are interested in your mission as yeah. well, you will find them. You just have to, it, again, it's the Wayne Gretzky quote. You have <laughs> to take more shots on goal. And yeah. it's a numbers game. But the point is, is that, again, because I refused to let my company die, I doubled down on talking to even more people and making connections. So every person, even if you say no, introduce me to three others mm. and that's sort of like this little um kind of uh breadcrumb trail that leads you to all the craziest kind of places but eventually you will find your people and a couple will tip and that's the momentum you need yeah absolutely so let's do uh one more question from twitter yeah so uh deepak chugani asked uh how are you measuring if your company has reached product market fit i think uh that's like what the billion dollar question yeah, yeah. i think it's a tricky one um so as best as I can tell, I look at it a couple of different ways. Okay. Um, one, I think, is um, from a retention point of view, right? So if you've got product market fit, you have built something that is working for people and they're coming back to it. They're using it. Um, they're coming back to it. They're not churning at like some massive amount. Um, and so for me, product market fit has to do with that. Um, stripping it down, for me, again, I think about it from a consumer standpoint, Product market fit has to do with the fact that you're solving their problem. Mm -hmm. You're solving their problem, the friction that they experience in their lives so well, so completely that they have no choice but to come to you, right? And so I think a lot of those things from like a Lyft or an Uber or an Airbnb, people who completely, in what, five years, completely changed how people think about a category. Like the people can't even fathom going back in time. Yeah. That's what we're doing with childcare and yeah. parenthood. And so my thought on product market fit is how do we make Poppy something that parents just can't even fathom being a parent without? Mm -hmm. And we're getting there. And like we have that here in Seattle because people will talk about it. We even had just a parent yesterday um, and we have a text interface. So we talk to our users, yep. I mean, literally every day. Um, and, you know, someone talking about moving outside of our service areas and making like just talking about how that's that would make their lives just so much worse. Yeah. Um, to not have access to Poppy. And so that is like goosebump stuff, but that is also product market fit. When you have people that can't um, get enough of what you're making, 
and you're scrambling to just keep up with that demand, I think in a lot of those types of terms. Okay, got you. Uh, I have a very random question then just about parenting in general. I saw this interesting video about... um, Three parents and one child. They were. It was like yeah. this interesting relationship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I, I'm just curious. Like, do you have thoughts on uh, the future of parenting and how it may be different than you know the traditional traditional like model yeah. that uh, we used to? Um, I have. I guess my most of my thoughts are kind of almost come back to the past where. Um, I love this idea of, I don't know if it's like communal living, but like multi-generational living. Yeah. Um, my parents are Indian. And uh, when I we would go back to India, um, my grandparents' farmhouse just literally had um, in the same farmhouse, my three uncles, their families, my grandparents. And you would go there and literally like we wouldn't see my parents for like weeks, right? Because they'd be somewhere. But <laughs> like, you know, it, it is communal parenting, right? Yeah. Um, my parents would watch out for their kids. Um, my aunts and uncles would be watching out for us. And I, that struck me in a very early age because I didn't have that for the rest of my life when we were living yeah. in Canada. And um, just the ease, the naturalness where parenthood isn't in crisis, right? It doesn't feel like a crazy thing that you're like, what am I supposed to do with this kid? Yeah. Um, so how people do it in the future, whether it's, you know, multiple parents or whatever, it's more fluid. Um, for me, the way that it works is that my nanny and her husband um, live in our house, right? So like, you know, they that, do. yeah, so they, oh. Um, yeah, okay. so it's like an au pair-ish kind of situation. Yeah. We have like a, um, a separate kind of like uh, apartment. Thing. We have an in-law apartment. And yeah. so instead of renting it out to somebody else, we rent it out to my nanny and her husband. That's great. And the incredible thing is, um, and then when my parents come over and if they're staying over, they stay in our attic kind of thing. Yeah. You know, but it feels wild because... Um, this is what I feel like it's meant to be. The burden isn't supposed to be all on my husband and I, right? Um, it allows us to have much needed breaks. Mm-hmm. It allows my kids to get to know their grandparents in a really compelling and like natural way. It allows me to have um, my nanny who feels like, you know, family, yeah. um, be a part of the family. And for my kids, for it to be just very inter, like, you know, interchangeable. And I think that's really important. Um, I've read a lot of research on, um, I, I like the idea of resilience in kids because yeah. I think that's a really important quality um, that we don't necessarily talk about a ton. But there's studies that say um, resilience is correlated by or correlated with the number of positive um, connections a child has with huh. people, uh, okay. related or not. And so that's also what I think about when I think about Poppy, because we here we have these incredible caregivers um, that go into the lives of, you know, these families and kids, and they can be these positive role models. Yeah. And we can build, you know, lots of families have lots of different, you know, situations well, going yeah. on, stresses or whatever else it is. No, you can never tell from the outside. But what I think about is that the more you can put positive relationships, positive kind of role models in the lives of children, you give them a better chance at being these resilient kind of um, grown-ups. So kind of following that line, what are your thoughts and, and probably advice around like parenting while being a founder, well, like two founders now? Yeah. Like, yeah. what are your thoughts? What, should, what, what do you tell other parents? Um, so I think there's sort of two pieces, um, for me, one is you have to be very specific about boundaries. And what that means for me is there's certain days that I'm on and I have to be a hundred percent founder. I can't think about, you know, it sounds sort of harsh, but I can't think about my kids and like all the other things that are on. Um, there will be days that my husband's just like primary parents. So if a teacher has to reach out or if there's PTA meetings or any of those things, or if our nanny needs um, anything, my husband's on tap. And um, there are other days that I am. And so that is just very clear. Yeah. Um, in the evenings, who 
whose night is it, right, to work late? Um, there's certain nights that'll be my night, certain nights will be my husband's night, and um, there are nights that my mom will come over and stay over. Yeah. And that kind of gives it, or a nanny works kind of late. Um, and so the, the point of that is, is that again, yeah. it is very scripted. There are nights that we have to, one of us is traveling or uh, somebody else has a meeting or something that has to shift. But we're very specific about what those are. And the more that you make it routine, the less disruptive it is for our kids. Yeah. They're just like, oh, yeah. And do you guys operate on the, the normal weekend schedule? Do you have any like habits or traditions where you're like, all right, Sunday dinner or, or whatever it might be. We're like, we're yeah. checking out, like yeah. turning off the phone. So a couple of them. First of all, um, I think, you know, talking about the kids is really important because I want my kids to, to feel that I am present and yeah. both of us are and all that kind of stuff. But at the same time... Um, there, so there will be times that I'm working from my home office and they're like very welcome in and out of the house. Um, but because my parents, um, we actually drop them off for like sleepovers at my parents' house um, some weekends. And that gives my husband and I important time for us to be ourselves connect. Um, we try to do this tradition of like Saturday morning dates instead of like evening ones. <laughs> and so we'll go do yoga and have a coffee or like a spin class and coffee. And that is something that we did when we dated or yeah. before we had kids. And the importance of that is we remember ourselves before we became parents. And that I think is really important for parents in general, because I think I've heard this idea of, and I felt it too, when I became a parent of like, you lose yourself, you lose your identity. And that is um, almost more harmful than anything else. Um, Mm. And so for us, that's really important that we square away time for just him and I, or just ourselves to take care of ourselves. And then the last thing is, um, we do have Sunday dinner. Um, Okay. I, you know, I, I, I like, I'm a big believer of eating together and that just like the whole cultural aspect of that. And so at the very least we have Sunday dinner, um, where we cook and like my parents will come over and all that kind of stuff. And I think that's also important for my kids to kind of see. Yeah, that's great. Uh, all right. Last question. So we're at the female founders conference. I should probably ask you, uh, what's your advice for a female founder? Just getting started. You said it right there. So I think, um, <laughs> okay. I think. There are so many people out there and it can be female founders. It can be other underrepresented um, kind of founders or people with just like different situations. I think too often we have really interesting ideas in our heads and we just think about all the obstacles that fall are, are in our way. Yeah. All the reasons why we can't. And that stops us from starting. And just having a shot at it. It's why I'm a big fan of this whole, like, I made it up, but, like, it was just, like, a construct to fool my mind about, like, the four-week test. Just give yourself something small to get to 100 paying users, right? Um, Because um, I love the idea of, like, having 100 is a tangible target. It isn't so far off, but it's pretty stretch. Paying users, to our previous point, about, no, they people vote with their dollars. Um, and so breaking that task down, um, I find gives people tangible reasons and a way to, for them to get started. But, um, and especially when it comes to women, I find that we are perfectionists, this whole idea of we don't want to mess up or if we are going to start something, it should be perfect. And so we like plan ourselves to perfection, which means we also don't start and we have to get really comfortable with, um, it being messy and complicated. Um, but the number one thing is we have to start and we have to take big swings. Mm. They can't be, you know, I have no idea. I don't have a tech co-founder. I'm not technical. How could I possibly, I had the exact same thoughts. And if I had those thoughts and I let them stop me, I wouldn't have started Poppy. So big swings means like not doing something like too easy or like, I think, so this is a controversial, it can be a controversial um, comment because 
if your vision and if your mission is to do something big, then have it be as big as possible. Yeah. If you want to build a nice smaller retail um, service business or whatever else that is, that's great. But let's not confuse that with startups. Yeah. Let's not confuse that with high growth, venture-backed ventures, basically, startups. Um, I am... a biggest supporter of small businesses, having been the daughter of two um, small business owners. But if we're talking about startups and big swings that are going to get angel and venture funded, then we have to talk about big disruptive technology. Um, And if that's the case, then we have to talk about all the ways that that can be possible. And if we're not talking about that, then we're not, we're like, you know, dead in the water before we even start. Totally. Yeah. I heard, uh, I think it was on Tim Ferriss's podcast with Chris Saka and he was talking about his investment strategy. And one of them was give yourself an opportunity to get rich. And like all these people make these like $10,000 bets and like you can never really win that way in the same way. Like if you have an idea, like maybe it's a small business, that's awesome. You can crush it. But like if you're going to take venture money and the max you can do is 10 million a year or something, then like you're kind of, you pick the wrong game. Exactly. Um, And I think in in my motivation in this, um, certainly, you know, you know, down the road, maybe there's the financial aspect, but for me, it really is, if we're going to do this, certainly there's the 10 million version of what I could do, right? Yeah. But if we're going to do this, do it for the whole damn thing, right? Like if we're going to do this and solve this for parents everywhere, let's solve it for parents everywhere. Yeah. And that makes it the billion dollar idea, yeah. right? I have no idea how we're going to do it yet, but I definitely know how we're doing it here in Seattle and how we're about to do it in more cities across the country. But so solve the problem that's in front of you. Worry about that first yeah. and just live to fight another day. And I think that's the biggest thing is that you have to get started and just going um, because if we don't, then we're just talking about it. I think that's great advice. All right. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. All right. Thanks for listening. So as always, you can find the transcript and the video at blog.ycombinator.com. And if you have a second, it would be awesome to give us a rating and review wherever you find your podcast. See you next time.